0: So tonight we're gonna we're still in the judgment seat of Christ study, but tonight we're gonna specifically look at some of these outer darkness passages. Okay, that that are mentioned in the scripture. Um, there's only three of them, and so we're gonna spend the next few weeks looking at those passages. Tonight we'll just we're gonna just kind of take one passage a night um, and really try to dive into some depth. Uh, you know, some depth, not not probably full depth. Uh, but tonight we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 5 through 13. So if you want to open your Bibles there, that's where we'll be tonight. And so as a, a real quick review from last week, um, those are your three outer darkness passages. Right up there, Matthew 8, 5 through 13, which we'll look at tonight. Matthew 22, 1 through 14, and then Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Uh, of course, we we pointed out last week that there's a consistency set, consistency there uh, that they're all in the Book of Matthew. Okay, so there's probably a reason for that. Um, we're not going to get into that tonight. I think the the text tonight really speaks for itself uh, in terms of context, and I think we'll be able to see that pretty clearly as we work through it. Um, here here's the thing with with the outer darkness pass, outer darkness passages as it relates to the Bema Seat judgment is. One of the things we've been studying the last four weeks is this whole concept of what's being judged at the Bema, what's being judged at this, this judgment seat of Christ. And we looked pretty clearly that the believer's good works are being evaluated. That's what's being judged. That's what's being evaluated. It's being evaluated, uh, or those works are being evaluated according to the source. What source did they come from? So this is, a, this is a good study to coincide with what we're doing on Sunday mornings. We're talking about, are you presenting yourself to sin? You're presenting yourself to God. What source are you living the Christian life from? Um, and it really just takes the focus so much off of just externals, um, which many people just live cr- the Christian life based on externals. Well, I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing it, all these external things versus even taking a more mindful approach and say, okay, what source am I living from? Am I mindfully reckoning myself dead to sin, alive unto God, and presenting myself to God? Am I, be, am I being mindful in the way that I live? Um, What it's not what's not being judged at the judgment seat of Christ is the believers acts of sin committed after they are saved, which are being judged or punished. And we looked at that last week where there's this common misconception in in Christendom that the judgment seat of Christ is going to be you um, in a room. You're going to be up front in the dunce chair with Jesus and he's going to project your life and all your sin on the screen. And then every other believer in history is going to just be sitting back there watching And just laughing at you or, or aghast at how sinful you are. No, that's not what's coming up at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, in fact, one of the reasons we know that is because our sins penalty has already been paid for by Jesus. So why would God bring up something that's already been paid for? Okay. So clearly, as we've looked at the passages, what is being judged at the Bema seat is our good works. They're being evaluated. Now, this raises a question in these Matthew passages, who is being cast into outer darkness? Um, and here's here's why we're even looking at this, because there's a new, um, newer understanding. I don't know how new, maybe in the last 10, 15 years or so. I don't, I don't even know off the top of my head um, that where some say that it's unfaithful Christians are being put there temporarily as a punishment. Um, while others say that outer darkness is a synonym for hell. Uh, that it's a place only for unbelievers, and so you, you've got a couple of different views there. When we look at these passages, um, just a, in terms of a spoiler alert, so you're not wondering where I stand. I, I hold the latter view. I believe that outer darkness is a synonym for hell, and it's it's a place where unbelievers go, not not believers. But there are some who will say, well, you know, after you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that at some level, your unfaithfulness. Uh, there's a punishment to your unfaithfulness, um, which again, if there's a punishment to unfaithfulness, what's being judged now? Sin. And, but the, but there's a punishment for unfaithfulness, and the punishment is cast into a place of outer darkness, which would be separation. Although they wouldn't define it that way. But I'm trying to I'm trying to represent their view well because obviously, how do you get around? Romans eight that says nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And some of these other passages that say, and you'll be with me forever, comfort one another with these words. But their view is that, um, some hold that you're, you will miss out on the millennial, uh, wedding banquet that precedes the millennium. You'll be cast out of that banquet and then you'll get to rejoin everybody during the millennium. And then some go so, so far to say that unfaithful believers will not even be in the millennium. They, they won't participate in it. They'll be in, in a place of of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. OK, that's where all these things uh, are going. And somebody said last week, that sounds like the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's back to you know, the those who would would teach against this have called it a Protestant purgatory. And so anyways, that's. That's why we're even studying these passages. Okay. Some people are beginning to teach this. Some people are beginning to believe this. One of the reasons for it is, is because anytime you teach a, a clear gospel of grace, then people are always going to accuse you of not having enough teeth in your message. There's not enough. Oh, you can just live any way you want to. And there's no repercussions. And there's no, uh, oh, you can just do whatever you want to. That's what you teach. And it leads to this really, you know, godless lifestyle and all these kind of things. But one of the things that, by the way, I mean, technically you can because your sins are paid for. OK, so that's not even up for debate. But we got to understand that that living a carnal Christian life, that there's there's consequences. <laughs> now, it's, consequences is not losing eternal life or having to pay for your sins or anything like that. But in, in the case of the Bema seat, I and mean, there's lots of we could, that's a whole other study we can do. But in the case of the Bema seat, um, the consequences, you you lose rewards. You miss out on rewards. And I've told people that before. They're like, oh, so what? That's no big deal. You know, no, it's it will be a big deal that day. And we kind of studied that in the passages. There's going to be a feeling of loss. There's going to be a feeling of of potential shame there. There's going to be um, some experience that it's going to be unpleasant, although you're missing out on rewards. But there's not a punitive a punishment aspect to the judgment seat of Christ. Um, whereas the outer darkness proponents would say that there is. And so that's kind of a, just a quick review from last week. Let's go to our text here and just read Matthew eight, uh, five through 13. We'll just read the story, um, all the way through, and then we'll start just kind of looking at it, uh, verse by verse here. So Matthew eight, uh, starting in verse five. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, "'Go,' and he goes, "'and to another, "'come,' and he comes. "'And to my servant, "'do this,' and he does it. "'When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, "'Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. "'And I say to you that many will come from east and west "'and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. "'But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness.' There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. All right. And so verses five through seven, we're going to pick up some background information. uh, We want to introduce this this guy, the centurion. Well, the centurion um, was a Roman military officer who managed or led 100 men. By definition, that was their rank. That's what they did for the Roman army. Um, in fact, it was these men, these centurions who were the backbone of the Roman army because, um, they led these, these little squadrons of, of a hundred men. And so you put uh, a couple of centurions together and next thing you know, you've got an army. But it was the fact that they could rule and lead and manage their, their men well, disciplined that, that made each of those units uh, a very deadly force to be reckoned with. So at this time in history, you can kind of see as he comes to um, Jesus that that people viewed these men positively at this point in time. Okay, so um, they seem to have had a positive reputation with the Jews as best we can tell during this time in history. Um, They were known as as fair minded men and they had the Jews respect. Um, They weren't like the tax collectors. They weren't like the, the people that were enforcing tax codes. These were honorable men. And even in the Jewish world. Um, they seem to treat the Jews with respect at least at this time. Um, here's the other thing we know about this guy he he knows who Jesus is. he approaches them um, he had probably heard reports of Jesus healing others and may have even heard of Jesus healing another official son in Capernaum and this is where our story takes place um if you if you flip with me real quick to John uh, chapter four, this is a a totally different story and and potentially happened. Probably happened before this story with the centurion, Uh, but John 4, 46 through 54. I'll just, I'll just read through this quickly. Uh, It says, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he'd made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So not the same story. in, In our story, we're talking about a centurion. This is a nobleman. Okay. So, so different people. Similar circumstances, but whose son was sick at Capernaum when he had heard that Jesus uh, had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed uh, the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. Uh, And then again, this is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. So you kind of see that that background information. Maybe the centurion had heard this story and he knew that Jesus didn't have to physically be there to heal him. And that's why he says, hey, I know, I'm a centurion. I, I tell this guy, go, I tell this person, do this. I, I know, if you just give the word, he's going to be healed. And so I think he he had maybe uh, some background with this story as well. And then we know that, um, well, from the word, it, it's an interesting, it's the Greek word pais. But servant could also have meant son. It was used interchangeably. We don't really gather enough from the context to know was it a servant? Was it a sign? So we'll just we'll go with servant um, just because we don't have enough in the context to know. But um, either way, the point is this. It was a Gentile, the, the centurion, asking for the healing of another Gentile. And that's that is something that we do. We do know because Jesus makes a big deal of the the ethnicity uh, as we as we go on. And then finally, we see that Jesus said he would physically come. And he would definitely heal him. So this time, Jesus says, I'm going to come. I'll come with you. And so, again, that's verses five through seven. Let's just read those again. And then we'll move on to verse uh, eight and nine. So verse five. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And so that's what we've got right now. That's kind of our background uh, as to what's going on here. And now uh, in verse eight, and nine, we get the centurion's response and, and it's really noteworthy. And it's this response that gets Jesus's attention. You know, in verse 10, you're, you're going to see that Jesus hears this response. And then it says that he marveled, uh, he was amazed. Okay. This is pretty noteworthy that this guy would say what he does. And so first thing he says is Lord, um, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Kind of this, this humility, um, that he, he understands. In fact, he, he uses, uh, a present tense verb to say he's presently, continually unworthy. He, he's in a state of unworthiness. Um, he's, he's not sufficient. He's not adequate. He's not competent. He doesn't, in other words, he doesn't deserve. Jesus, I don't even deserve for you to come down to my roof. But if you just say the word, you know, so just a, just an incredible, uh, humble, uh, response to the Lord. Then he says, um, but only speak a word. Uh, and my servant would be healed. And so he recognizes Jesus' authority over disease. Um, and he recognizes his authority is the same authority he has over the men that he manages. Very same. I say do this, they do this. And Jesus, you can say be healed and he'll be healed. So he just kind of, he's making these uh, these connections. To heal his servant. Um, and I love I love the next phrase because he only had to speak a word notice it's singular it's not it's not like you know these these mystical religions where they just they got to go on and on for an hour and just can't jesus just says one word it's it's a done deal of course we know from from scripture i mean he created the world uh, through his words and all things were created by him and for him in colossians and so you know he was the one that said let there be light so i mean his words pretty good, right so the centurions recognizing all this, he's like, all you got to do is say one word. I know you don't have to go through a magical incantation to heal. You don't even have to come to my house. If Even if you say it from a distance, uh, he knows, he's confident that he'll be healed. And so as we kind of pointed out, uh, Jesus is really floored, if you will, or marvels um, at the centurion's response. And, um, and this is where we kind of start getting into this whole outer darkness, you know, as we're starting to kind of lead into where this is used. But notice that he's he's really amazed as he compares it to, to, to Israel's reaction to his ministry thus far. All right, let's let's kind of make let's kind of see how Jesus is making this connection. Verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Okay? So so already in verse 10, he's starting to set up this comparison contrast between this Gentile centurion. In the nation of Israel. okay, And and really, what's he comparing? Well, he's comparing their faith. That's, that's the comparison that he's doing here. So again, notice the comparison here between the centurion's faith and the nation of Israel's faith. And then Jesus is going to go on and describe the irony um, that some Gentiles will make it into the kingdom via faith, but some Israelites will miss the kingdom via lack of faith. That's where he's going with this whole Um, comparison. Now, why is that ironic? Why would that be ironic to the the average Jewish listener that certain Gentiles will make it and some Jews won't make it? Why would that be ironic? Anybody have an idea just what was going on during this time period? What was the mindset of a Jew? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that, but, um, there, there was clear teaching in the Old Testament that, that there would be Gentiles in the kingdom. Um, but, but the mindset was even more that every Jew would make it. That was, that was the misunderstanding. Um, and so we, we'll kind of see that. We'll, we'll play that out, um, a little bit. We'll look at some verses. But the mindset of the, of the Jewish male specifically was that if, if they were circumcised and a son of the covenant, they were in the kingdom. Period. Period. That was the deal. So all you had to be and the only way you could be out of the kingdom uh, after you circumcised is you had to renounce the covenant. You had to renounce Judaism and then you wouldn't make it. But other than that, everybody was getting in. This is why when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus is really confused. Like, what are you talking about? I'm a Jew. This is why John the Baptist's message to the Israelites when he comes is repent, change your mind. And he goes on to explain what he means by that. He says, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones, which kind of gives you an insight into what they're thinking. Hey, I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, this is, this is ironic. I mean, this is ironic. I mean, here, here's this Gentile with great faith. They're going to be Gentiles in the kingdom. And they're going to be some Jews that miss the kingdom. That's what I think he's talking about here. And so verse 11, um, he says there are going to be some Gentiles uh, that take part in the kingdom. Let's look at verse 11. And I say to you that many will come uh, from East and West and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then look at verse 12, which we'll touch on here in a second. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so who are the many here that he's talking about in the verse? Well, I, they are people from all over. I mean, that's while well, the, Geographic, geographic references are there north, south, um, you know, east and west or not north, south, I guess east and west. But they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in, in this kingdom of heaven. Now, that's one of the things, too, as you look at Matthew's use of the, the, the term kingdom of heaven, you'll find that all throughout the book of Matthew. I believe that's referring to the millennial kingdom. I think as you, you just kind of interpret that you go through, it's a, it's a pretty consistent use of that term as a millennial kingdom. And so what is Jesus saying here? Well, the irony is that there's going to be Gentiles who sit down with the old Testament patriarchs, Abraham himself. They're going to sit down um, with him in the kingdom. And so again, the Gentiles will be a part of the millennial kingdom will actually sit down with and fellowship with the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, Again, ironic because all of the Jews felt that they would be doing the same thing. Every single one of them felt that way. But he contrasts in verse 12 and he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so just based on the context here, just based on what we've looked at so far, can we see that the contrast is between Gentiles, believing Gentiles and unbelieving Jews? Does that, does that seem to come out clear when we talk about sons of the kingdom? Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jews. This is their kingdom promised to them in their scriptures um, offered to them, um, as a, as a free gift, they simply had to believe in the Messiah and it's and it's theirs. And so this is what he's contrasting here. This is a, a stark contrast. And, and this is what he's, he's, he's saying is he's blown away that some Gentiles have more faith than Jews. And this is supposed to be their kingdom. This is supposed to be their promised kingdom. And yet Gentiles, some Gentiles are going to get in. Some Jews are going to miss out. So in stark contrast, the sons of the kingdom will not be part of the kingdom promised to them as a nation. Why? Because some of them would not believe in the Messiah. Who are the sons of the kingdom? Well, I believe it's ethnic Israel. And in this context, it's clearly referring to a subgroup within the larger national group that do not believe in Jesus as their Messiah. You know, we get into Romans uh, chapter 9 eventually, Um we're going to see that, that Paul describes not, not all Israel is Israel. What does he mean by that? Well, he, does, he just means that, that ethnic Israel is not comprised of 100% believers in the Messiah. That, that true Israel are, are Jews that believe in their Messiah. And so he makes that subgroup distinction. But, but here he calls them the sons of the kingdom. What's interesting is um, these, are, these are sons of the kingdom that are going to be cast into outer darkness and if you hold your place there in Matthew um, eight, flip over to Matthew thirteen thirty-eight, and you're going to see that Jesus uses this same phrase of believing Israelites. Okay, so uh, he's using this uh, of Israelites. One in, in Matthew eight is is going to be cast into outer darkness, and then this other group in Matthew thirteen thirty-eight will actually um, enter uh, the kingdom. So. The the disciples are asking him to explain the parable of the tares of the field. And in in verse 38, he says, the field is the world, the good seeds, notice that the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. And then he he goes on. And then if you go down um, into verse 42, uh, he talks about the sons of the wicked one. These tares will will be cast uh, into the furnace of fire there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Okay, So there he doesn't use the term outer darkness, but he, he uses that term wailing and gnashing of teeth, which which we'll look at here in a second as well um, in Matthew 8. But the point is this, is that he uses the same phrase of believing Israelites in Matthew 13. So this sons of the kingdom talking about um, Israel, Israelites. And so again, Jesus is contrasting the faith of the centurion with the lack of faith, of the common Jew of his day, that's that's what he's contrasting here in this passage. As mentioned before, the common misconception of the Jews in Jesus' day is that they were a guarantee to get in the kingdom if they're a physical descendant of Abraham. Um, flip back to Matthew three, uh, and again, you see this in John the Baptist message, Matthew three verses seven through nine. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Verse nine. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Okay, that was that was an area that many Jews needed to change their mind about. It wasn't. What family are you born into? But rather, who who do you believe in? Who are you trusting in? Do you you believe in the Messiah? Will you trust the Messiah? That was the issue. And that's why John's message is um, defined further by Paul in Acts 19. When he preached the message of repentance, what was his message in Acts 19 to those disciples in Ephesus? That they should believe on the one who came after him. That's that's the message they needed to, to change their mind about. They needed to put their faith in Christ. Um, versus thinking that their, their national birth would get them into the kingdom. All right, so back to Matthew 8. We're going to see that this, this unbelieving Jew, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom, these unbelieving Jews, their fate is that they'll be cast into outer darkness. The word cast out uh, is a Greek word. I'll, <clears throat> let me write this up here because I'm going to reference this. Ek is just a, a preposition that just means out, out of. Or out. And then balo uh, means to to throw. Okay, so that just kind of, this is just a preposition jammed on the front of that word to give us a, uh, a directional, um, you know, where they're going to be thrown, they're going to be thrown out. And it also kind of intensifies the word. And so that's the word we've got here <clears throat> when he says they'll be cast out into outer darkness. And so we looked at this last week, but just as a quick review. Just defining the words outer darkness doesn't help us because outer means outer <laughs> or exterior and darkness means darkness. <laughs> so we don't get, we don't gather a lot. One thing we do gather in this context is both words are articulated. In other words, both have a uh, the word "the" in front of them. You don't get that in the English text because it would, it would read really weird, but it's cast into the outer, the darkness. And the only thing that, that that means is it just gives it a very specific reference. It's a specific and unique place. That's what it's it's describing there. Uh, again, it's hard to tell the identity about this place based solely on the, the words definitions. Um, we know they're articulated, seems to indicate a specific and unique place. Um, and then since the context, again, context, we go to the context, seems to be entrance into the kingdom. The the outer concept then seems to be seems to apply to being outside of the kingdom, okay? Not just the wedding feast, yeah, Dad. Yeah, yeah, it it would. It'd be the the hell compartment of Hades. Yeah, exactly. Which we'll talk about here in a second because I'm glad you brought that up. We'll bring that up here in a second. And so it, it's it's not if we're just based on context, it's you're not just being cast out of the wedding feast here. Okay. That's going to be Matthew 22 is what some people teach this, this context is telling us they're going to be out of the kingdom. Okay. Just, just based on what we're reading here. Um, and so that again, so what is this outer darkness? Well, those are a couple of things that we uh, know about it. Now, um, there's a good idea of casting out, casting somebody out here. Um, so this is, these are some reasons why I think outer darkness is hell. Okay. And to my dad's point, you know, Hades is, is really the term, the, the general term for the underworld. Um, without, and that, and I might get a little off track there. So I, I'll try to keep it. I'll try to keep it short. If it doesn't make sense, just come see me afterwards. But Hades, Hades originally had two compartments, if you will, hell and a in paradise or Abraham's bosom. Okay. Those, so two compartments. So People in the Old Testament were were saved. They would go to paradise or Abraham's bosom. Those who were unsaved would, would go to hell. Um, when Jesus died and rose again, he cleared out Abraham's bosom. Paradise took them with him to heaven. And now people who die, when they're, they're absent from the body, they're present with the Lord. They don't go to Abraham's bosom or paradise. That compartment's been completely cleared out. And so there's one compartment left in Hades right now, and that's hell. And we'll see at the great white throne judgment that Hades is cast into the lake of fire. So it, everything's cast. And you'll see, like we'll, we'll look at that here in revelation 20. Everything is cast in the lake of fire, the beast, the false prophet, Satan, unbelievers, death and hate. I mean, everything's just cast in the lake of fire. Okay. So this is why these are reasons why I think this outer darkness refers to hell. Okay. And not just a, a place of temporary punishment for unfaithful believers or very resident unfaithful believers. Uh, first, first reason God promises never to cast out the believer. Okay. He promises it. John, um, 637. Let's just turn there. So John, um, 637, John 637 uses this word, ekbalo. Okay. Same exact word. And he's, he says this in John 637, um, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me. I will by no means cast out. I will by no means ekbalo. Okay. So if, so if Matthew 8, 12 refers to a believer being cast out into outer darkness, that would contradict that verse right there, right? Where Jesus says, um, and not only that, that, that word by no means, I've got that um, up there for you. It's It's the Greek double negation. You know, in English, when we um, when we have a double negative, what's it do to the sentence? So it kind of, it creates a positive, you know, people that speak in double negatives all the time, you're always like, okay, what did they mean? Did they, did they mean to make it positive or is it negative? But, but in the Greek, you can do a double negative And what it does is it strengthens the negation. And so it would be, it would be like saying, um, as we look at John six thirty seven again, the one who comes to me, I will never know, not ever cast out. So it's the strongest way. To negate something in the Greek, and so we, security passages use that construction "ume," "ume." So that's a fun one to re, fun one to remember because it's almost like "who me," but it's it's "ume," and it just means never, no, not ever. It's a really, really strong negation. And so Jesus says uh, he'll never, no, not ever, ekbalo uh, a believer. Okay, so we we see that there um, as as part of the first reason. But clearly, Matthew 8, 12, this unbelieving Jew will be cast out into outer darkness. He says he's going to cast them out, Ekbalos. So um, are we talking about a believer there or an unbeliever? Well, if, if it's a believer, then we've got some explaining to do. Why does, why does he say he'll never, no, not ever do it in John 6, 37? And then he says here that he's unfaithful, he'll cast them out. So I, I believe that, again, that Matthew 8, 12, as we studied through that passage again, is talking about an unbelieving Jew. That's going to be cast out into hell, outer darkness. And again, this is consistent with other passages in Matthew. Did I put that point in your notes with all the verses? Because if not, I'll give you time. Are those in the notes somewhere? No. Okay. So if you want to write those down, we we've got other passages in Matthew. Um, some of these I put in here. Um, what you're going to find in in some of these verses. Is not the use of the word ekbalo, but you're going to find the use of the word balo. So it just doesn't have the the directional preposition out um, in the word. In fact, let's just look at a couple of these. I'll I'll just read them to you. Matthew 13, 42. Um, In fact, that was the parable of the tares that we looked at earlier. But he says, and and I will cast them into the furnace of fire. That word cast, this word balo. Um So he's going to cast them into the furnace of fire. Again, I think is a reference to hell. Um, 1350, um, which is another parable out of entrance into the kingdom. He says, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, it's the word balo. He's going to cast them or throw them um, into the furnace of fire. Um, another use of the word ekbalo is actually found in Luke uh, 1328. And I'll, let's look at that real quick. Uh, Luke 13, which I don't think I've got up there. You might, you might could write that down. This is actually a, a use of the word ekbalo. And this is a, a again, a very um, uh, similar, similar use here. Uh, Cause you're going to see in verse 28, he says, there's going to be um, weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves, thrust out. Okay. That phrase thrust out again is this, this Greek word, ekmolo, cast out. Okay. And I believe too, if you, if you look through that passage, you're going to see that the people he's talking to about being thrust out are Jewish unbelievers. Again, the, the irony that they're going to miss out on, on this kingdom, that they're going to miss out on this fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and that some Gentiles will be there. Cause look at verse 29. If you're in Luke 13, It says, and they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Who's he talking about? I think he's talking about Gentiles. Uh, The ones who didn't seem to to be able to get into the kingdom, they're actually going to make it because they believe. And the Jews who the kingdom was designed for are going to miss it because they didn't believe, some of them. Uh, Yeah, be careful. I'm not using a broad swath to say no Jew is going to make it to the millennial kingdom. There will be. But unbelieving, some unbelieving Jews won't. And that's going to be a tragedy because this kingdom is for them. Um, and then if you go into Revelation, I'll, you've got all these verses up here. I'll just kind of tell you Revelation nineteen twenty, It says the beast and the false prophet are ballo. They're thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 2010, it says the devil's thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 2014, it says death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And then in Revelation 20, 15, it says all unbelievers are thrown in the lake of fire. And it's all this word, this balo. Okay. So when we start talking about throwing people's places <laughs> in the scripture, it, it's generally throwing them into hell, throwing them into eternal condemnation. And so that would be uh, an odd use um, and really contradictory use of that word. If Matthew 8, 12 referred to unfaithful believers. Okay. So another, a uh, second reason why I believe outer darkness uh, refers to hell. The word darkness itself, the word that's translated darkness in Matthew eight twelve, and these, these and also the three places in Matthew where outer darkness is mentioned, um, is used um, of God's eternal judgment in hell and Satan's domain in general. Um, we see this, and just for time's sake, I'm going to just fly by these, but uh, you can look these up. Second Peter two seventeen and. G- Um, It's used of unsaved false teachers and their eternal or uh, eternal and eventual destination. So um, just that they'll, they'll be uh, confined to a place of darkness. Okay. So it's kind of, it's used there uh, in terms of, of hell. And um, thanks, Adam, quit goofing off back there. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It shut off for a second. Um, But the other thing is, is, is uh, we just see from other passages, we've been delivered from darkness this word darkness is used a couple of places let's look at a couple of examples acts 26 18 and so this is uh, this is Paul uh, recounting his conversion and this is uh, some words that Jesus spoke to him shortly after uh, his experience on the road to uh, road uh, to Damascus verse 18 part of the reason that that Jesus uh, is calling him to, to this ministry is to Let's we'll back up to seventeen. He says, "I'll deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you." Uh, verse eighteen: to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness. There's our word, to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so it would just be it would just be odd that if if one of the main purposes of of ministry is to, to take people and to turn them from darkness to light. It's going to send them back to, to darkness. It's just a it's an odd, there's a deliverance aspect that that's mentioned here. Um, go to Ephesians five, eight and you'll see kind of the same concept communicated there. Ephesians five, eight says for you were once darkness but now you're light in the Lord walk as children of the light. And if the outer darkness teaching was true, that it was faithful believers went you, it would say for you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And if you live unfaithfully, you'll be sent back to darkness. You know, it just, it just doesn't pass the, the scriptural test here. uh, When we consider this concept and then go one more place. First Peter uh, two, nine. And, and, and Peter writing to believers says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him again, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So and that's the question with the God who called us out of darkness later cast us back into darkness. I and mean, that, that would be what you'd have to believe if, if you thought the outer darkness was a place of punishment for unfaithful believers. It's in Colossians 1 also. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so you see a consistency through the scriptures that there's, um, we're called out of darkness. Not, now, we're not going to go back to it uh, for unfaithfulness. Um, number three, another reason I believe that um, that outer darkness refers to is as believers, we're promised to be with Jesus forever, never to be separated from him or his love. And we see that a couple of places. I'll pull these up. Um, John 14, I'll, I'll kind of leave uh, just for time's sake, but obviously that's that's a good one. You can check out on your own time. But go to 1 Thessalonians 4. This, this to me would be a really hard verse to reconcile with this outer darkness teaching um, because in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, let me just kind of pick up in verse 16, because I, would, I really want to talk about what's in verse 17 and 18. But this is talking about the rapture of the church, which we believe the Bema happens immediately after the rapture. Um, we, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then notice this next phrase. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. That's that would be a really hard verse to get around. Because if it says we're talking about every believer in the church age involved in this event. Those who have died in Christ will be raised and they'll be they'll they'll meet him in the air first. Those who are who are alive and remain will then meet them in the air along with Jesus and then he says, "And thus we shall always be with the Lord." And so, if if the bema follows the rapture, and it's at the bema that people are then cast into outer darkness, um, how is how to by definition how is that being with the Lord? That's you're in a separate place than He is. You're in a separate place of punishment. So just again, it just doesn't seem to 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 pass the test. Um, and then Romans eight, of course, a very familiar passage, um, thirty five through thirty nine. I tell you, this is a such a fun passage to teach in Liberia because you can just electricity in the room. Like it's they're they're waiting to burst out in praise and they're just so excited about, you know, how how nothing can separate us from the love of, of Christ. Um, so verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or, or sword as it is written? All these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. our Lord. And so, again, to be cast into outer darkness would then teach that we could be separated from God's love, or at least separated from him um, in outer darkness during that time. And again, it just... Um, doesn't pass the, the scriptural test. And then finally, um, the, the description of outer darkness is a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth, um, which describes anger, hostility, and painful torment. And um, and so what you're going to notice is that every outer darkness passage we look at over the next few weeks is going to also come along with this this second phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, we're going to try to try to define that today. And I'll and I'll tell you, um, you know, in terms of the the view that that outer darkness is for believers, I'm going to try to define how they define it just so that you're aware of, of their argument. Um, but again, I think I just I just don't agree with it, basically I just think it's, it's it's not a very strong argument. So what they would have you to believe is that weeping and gnashing of teeth simply describes profound regret. Okay. That that's all it describes is profound regret. Okay. And that would make sense with their teaching that you appear before the Bema, you lived an unfaithful life. And so you've got just really profound regret. You wish you could go back and do it differently. Um, And that's how you feel in outer darkness. You're kind of in the timeout corner. And and you're just really regretting that you didn't live more faithfully. Okay, and that's kind of their their understanding of this word. Um, so when we kind of define it, weeping normally means weeping or lamentation. Um, and keep in mind that that people may weep for various reasons, good or bad. Um, but in the New Testament, every instance of this word involves weeping due to something sorrowful or emotionally painful. Okay, so just the uses in the in the New Testament. If you were to look up this word. And, and I would encourage you on points like this in, in the notes, I would just encourage you go check it, go, go verify those kind of, these are big statements. We just don't have time to go look through all however many uses, if there's 15 or whatever, but you can, in a strongest concordance, just go look up this word and you can kind of see that it's going to involve, it's in other words, it's never joyful weeping. Okay. So there's always something sorrowful or emotionally uh, painful going on. What, what, kind of gets interesting is, is so that's your wailing or that's your weeping, but then you've got this word gnashing. Um, gnashing means to grind one's teeth to, to gnash. Um, and it was a sign of violent rage. Okay. Um, which sounds a little bit different than regret, you know, remorseful regret. It's not, it's, it's in the ballpark of emotions and they may share those two of those emotions, but in terms of it being the same thing, it's, it's not, it doesn't seem to be really close. Let me just kind of tell you some other uses of the word gnashing. Um, it was used of the roaring of a lion. Uh, metaphorically, it means to tear in pieces or devour um, or of a gnawing disease. Um, I don't, if anybody has, has, um, had to get a mouthpiece when you sleep at night because you you grind your teeth. I don't, there's some people that are, are stressed and anxious and so they grind their teeth all night when they sleep and they're going to put a mouthpiece in. So that would be kind of uh, maybe representative of this gnashing. It was used of the death cry of, of wounded men. Okay, again, is that remorse? Is that, you know, regretful remorse or is that something more than that. I think it's it's a little bit more than that. Um it was used whether involuntary as in the case of certain illnesses or as an expression of an emotion such as anger uh or pain uh or suffering. Okay, and so these are all some of the uses of this. And so the question becomes how do they fit together? How does weeping and gnashing fit together? Well I I think as it relates to hell, I and mean, this is how I would understand it, there there's going to be many emotions in hell. Remorse, pain, being enraged, having sorrow, having self-pity mixed with anger, hostility, bitterness toward God. And you can see how that would um, rotate, how how those emotions might rotate um, back and forth. Like our screen tonight is rotating back and forth. But you could see how those emotions, you know, one day in hell, it might just... It might, you know, obviously there's going to be pain, but there might be remorse, you know, there might be sorrow for having been there. And then you start to think about it and then they, you get mad at God. Why would he send me here? Well, I thought he was a loving God. And then there's this, there's this bitterness and this enragement. And so you, I, I think that's what the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, I think that's how it fits together. It just kind of encompasses all the emotions that, that might be experienced, um, that will be experienced in hell. And so I find it. What's interesting is there's seven uses of this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. We, we started talking about outer darkness. I gave you all the passages that that outer darkness is mentioned in. Weeping and gnashing of teeth are in all three of those. Then there's four additional passages where just weeping and gnashing of teeth are used without outer darkness. So there's seven total um, in Matthew and Luke. But guess what? We see the term used one other time in Acts 7:54. And I think this is insightful. Let's go to Acts 7:54. Because I think this gives us even greater insight into the use of, of this term. Acts, Acts 7, those of you that know Acts, what's going on in Acts 7? What's, what's that whole chapter about? It's all about Stephen, right? And his, his sermon, basically, um, before the Jews, okay, before the Sanhedrin. And so he gets to, to the end of his sermon um, and he, he did not mince words in verse 51, you stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy spirit as your fathers did. So do you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So that is you know, the antithesis of making friends and influencing people. You don't, you don't say that to people and expect them to have a positive response. What's their response? Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they, here's our word. They gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, were they remorseful or sorrowful or were they hot, red, red, hot, fiery, mad at him? Well, that's exactly what they were. In fact, It describes their response to a sermon. It wasn't a a response of deep regret or remorse. It was a response of anger. They they wanted to kill him, and they did kill him. Um, And so, again, it was a direct, sinful response of bitter anger and hostility manifested when they were rebuked and corrected. Uh, Again, those two waving and gnashing of teeth put together, I think, again, describe the the gamut of emotions that people experience uh, in hell, which is called outer darkness in our passage in Matthew Eight. And so kind of wrapping up Matthew eight uh, thirteen, uh, if you want to flip back there with me, we'll kind of close out that passage tonight. Matthew eight um, thirteen. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that same hour. And again we see that Jesus' response was highlighting the centurion's faith. Okay, That was the contrast he's making in this passage between the centurion's faith, the Jewish, uh, the Israelites faith, the fact that some Gentiles are going to get into the kingdom because they believe and they have faith. And some Jews who the kingdom was designed for are, are not going to believe they're not going to get into the kingdom and they're going to be cast into hell. That's to me, the, the understanding of that passage. And so I put up a chart here. You've got uh, you've got a chart at the bottom of your notes. Go ahead and fill that in. Uh, Again, he's making a comparison of of Gentile with faith, the Israelite without faith. So again, Gentile with faith versus an Israelite without faith. Then he's comparing those from the east and the west, Gentiles, to the sons of the kingdom. He's making that that comparison in this passage. He's talking about uh, the destination in the kingdom, uh, the Gentiles. Again, now based on faith, the Israelites outside of the kingdom uses the phrase in outer darkness, out, out of the kingdom, in hell, in faith. And the reason for exclusion from the kingdom for the Israelite is lack of faith. Okay. And so that's, that's really the first passage on outer darkness. And I'll, I'll be honest to me, that's the, the simplest one to handle. That's pretty I think, I mean, it seems It seems straightforward to me as to what's being taught there. And so hopefully uh, that was the case for you tonight. So we'll look at um, the next two passages, the next two times with me. Um, Next week is a fifth Sunday. So we're going to have a potluck and then we're going to have kind of a special service that night. I think we've got uh, four men in our church um, who are going to share about what it looks like sharing Christ in the workplace and how they have opportunities to do that. um, What they look for, just kind of share, but, you know, five minutes each. Um, and then we'll have some other, uh, things that I'll, I'll visit with you about. So if you can come next week, um, love to have you here, but we're going to take a break from this study next week and then we'll just pick up the next week. We've got three more studies. We'll, we'll look at two more passages in Matthew and then we'll have kind of a wrap up, uh, for our last study. So, all right. Well, let's go home. Let's pray and we'll go. Lord, thanks, um, for the study tonight and, um, really just as we're, uh, as we look at these things and consider them, we are just amazed at your grace and really just amazed that we could even be saved and into a heaven that we don't deserve. And Lord, that part of our inheritance is the millennial kingdom and and that we also get that by grace. You know, it's just, it's just a miracle, Lord, the way you treat us, the way you've loved us. And so uh, we just want to really understand that and embrace that as we live our life and not live life just walking on eggshells, but, but live life in fellowship with you and just enjoying you walking in the good works that you've designed us to walk in, that we might be mindful uh, of the source that we're living from on a daily basis and so that we would learn what it means to walk by faith. And so we just pray that you'd give us that understanding and, and really make that a practical part of our life and thinking. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.